This episode of Reality Escape Pod is brought to you by Morty, virtual escape games, and Patreon supporters like you. Welcome to the Reality Escape Pod, your lifeline when you need a getaway from the real world. I'm David Spira, alongside my co-host, PG Law. Together, we're exploring immersive gaming from all angles, and we'll be joined by guests who really know their stuff. Today's guest is tabletop game designer Matt Leacock, best known for creating cooperative games like Pandemic, Forbidden Island, and he's currently working on Daybreak, a co-op game about climate action. Welcome, Matt. Hey, thanks for having me. Matt, you don't know, but David is your number one fan. (laughs) (laughs) Pandemic and Pandemic Legacies are his favorite games in the entire universe, and he talks about it all the time. So happy to hear that. That's great. Yeah, PG has uh, just outed me. I'm I'm holding back my my fanboy. But yeah, I'm very honored to have you on. Pandemic is a game that means a lot to me. I've had a lot of fun memories associated with it. It was one of my first modern tabletop games, along with Settlers of Catan and Dominion. I bought it immediately after seeing it on Will Wheaton's YouTube series Tabletop back in October 2012. And my first game playing it was by Lantern Light during Hurricane Sandy, which was its own little surreal experience. Not a pandemic, but a different calamity nonetheless. Sounds like quite an evening. Yeah. Wow. Playing by Hurricane. (laughs) Yeah. Your cooperative games solve a huge problem for me in that co-op games allow me to play really hard without trampling over my friends. And Pandemic really opened my eyes to this whole style of play. I've loved this genre and these games because of that. Anyway, that's what this means to me. That's great. I'm, I'm glad that uh, the games have found a place in your rotation and it provides an out for uh, you to express a lot of that stuff. They did something like that for me as well. That's part of the reason why I started creating them, in fact. I love cooperative games. and I bought Pandemic years ago because I saw that it was a co-op. And I was like, I'd never really heard of a board game before that was co-op. And so I used to play all these games online and I used to play like World of Warcraft. And I loved games like that because it was you play as a team and you're fighting against the environment. And so that's why I really gravitated towards something like Pandemic. When you set out, was that your goal? Was I want to do a co-op game? I didn't want it to be like competitive or anything like that. Yeah, that's exactly right. I had played a game called Lord of the Rings by uh, uh, Reiner Knizia. It was mm-hmm. a, the first cooperative game that I ever played that I'm like, oh, wow, this is actually fun. Before that, I thought these sorts of games would be for like kids to teach them how to share and care about each other, that sort of thing. <laughs> Grownups need to learn that too. <laughs> yeah, right, right. But it would be like an educational thing that wouldn't necessarily be something you'd want to do. But I played that game. I'm like, wow, this is really compelling. I, I want to see if I can do a game like this. And I was really inspired by that. For one part, when we played that game, we found that everybody felt good no matter whether we won or lost, as opposed to like when you play like a heavy negotiation game or something like that, and you do lots of psychological manipulation or what have you, and at the end of the game, you won, and everybody hates you. <laughs> so. I see you two have played diplomacy. <laughs> a little bit like Survivor. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, those, those were not always the best feelings around the house, so I thought, make one of these cooperative games. Maybe that'll go over better, and so I jumped into it that way. David and I are escape room nerds, and that's another reason why I love escape rooms is because you're working together for a common goal. 
Yeah, exactly. And uh, you can bring other people up with you, right? As opposed to uh, worrying about whether you know your expertise is actually an unfair advantage. If you're the person who read the rule book, does that mean you're going to win? That sort of thing doesn't happen so much with cooperative games. One of the things I just love about it is that I don't have to teach the whole rule book to everybody when we get started. Because if you're playing a competitive game and you're like, oh yeah, I'll teach you that later. They're like, no, I need to know that now because you're just going to use this against me. Is That's like the vibe that it has. With cooperative games, you can say, look, I'm going to teach you a whole bunch of the basics. There are a few nuances. We'll get to that in the middle of the game when they become more relevant. You don't need to learn it all right now. And people aren't distrustful of that, which I just think it's a nicer way to get things rolling quickly. Yeah, totally. And teaching rules is one of the biggest barriers to getting into a, a board game. So anything you can do to reduce that hurdle is golden. You just tell everybody, hey, you know what? We got you. It's going to be fine. We'll show you the ropes. And then by the end of this, you're going to have a really good idea what's going on. Yeah. For people who aren't familiar, can you explain how a cooperative game like Pandemic works? Sure. Yeah. In Pandemic, you're all working together on the same team, and your objective is to find the cures to four different diseases. I guess today we'd call them variants that are <laughs> running around the world. On your turn, you take different actions, and generally you're either trying to put out local emergencies to prevent outbreaks from running across the world and making things spiral out of control, to buy enough time to discover four cures. And if together you can find those four cures before everything spins out of control, then you, you win the game. For me, I always feel like most cooperative games that I've played feel like a group collaborative puzzle. I think that there is a fair amount of overlap between you like Escape Room and you probably are also going to get something out of a cooperative game because there is this work together, solve the board vibe that can emerge. Yeah, totally. I mean, my working definition of a game is one that I cribbed from The Art of Game Design uh, by Jesse Schell. Mm -hmm. And he says that a game is a problem-solving activity approached playfully. And that just drives my work. I just want there to be like some playful environment where everybody can come together and solve problems together. And so that, that works really well for me. Yeah, I'm, I'm right there with you. Okay. You started working on Pandemic back when SARS was more top of mind. I'm curious what kind of research went into designing the game because it's a very compelling merger of theme and mechanics that you've pulled together here. It does not feel like it happened by accident. Yeah, I didn't do a real deep dive. I was intrigued by a lot of different ideas. One of them was just systems design, trying to figure out how can I create a story out of very simple mechanisms, as it were. It's cellular automa. I'm trying to figure out how that works. Very simple things, and you get these emergent behaviors coming out. So you're just drawing cards and putting cubes on the board. But how can you design a system so that it actually feels like disease is spreading and, and, and spreading out of control? So I was really drawn to that from a systems design standpoint. But I also did a little bit of reading. I read the, the Hot Zone, which is about the Marburg virus early on, and was influenced by like pop culture stuff like 12 Monkeys and so <laughs> So it's not like a like I did some sort of deep dive in the, into the virology or, or what have you. I have a very distinctive memory of being in elementary school and my mom was reading The Hot Zone and I asked her what it was about and uh, I had nightmares for like a week. Oh my God. <laughs> did you start with the theme first or did you have a general idea of the type of mechanic you wanted to do and then you slotted it in there? Yeah, I'm trying to think. 
I've reconstructed this memory so many times, I'm not sure how <laughs> accurate it is, but I do remember I went out on a walk with my then infant daughter, came back and, and pulled out a scratch pad and started sketching things out. I definitely knew I wanted it to be cooperative. I knew it was going to be about disease. And I think from that point forward, it was just sort of like sketching with components, as it were, like play acting some stuff out. So I was playing with a deck of cards and some cubes and so on and jotting down ideas in the margins of the, of the board. So I think I had some ideas for mechanisms. I wanted to use multi-use cards. So cards that you use for a lot of different things. But I stumbled into the whole mechanism that the game uses to amplify tension just by accident, just by fooling around with a deck of cards. Oh boy, and it certainly amplified a lot of tension. <laughs> yeah. I, I played through it again last night and I think I accidentally triggered like three outbreaks in a row and I was like, who came up with this? I was like, oh yeah, I'm talking to him tomorrow. This, this is so sadistic. <laughs> I think that's one of the reasons why Pandemic has been so popular for so long is the gameplay and the theme really work well together. It all makes sense. Yeah, I think the best games for me where that intersection happens is you start maybe on one end. Let's say you start with the mechanisms and you apply some theme to it. And then you see the possibilities of what that theme can unlock. And that changes the mechanism. So it's like a dialogue. You go back and forth between the two, iterate, iterate, and come up with this happy medium where the theme explains the gameplay to an extent where everything feels really natural and, and fluid. On that subject, with Pandemic Legacy, you took the core gameplay of Pandemic and turned it into a playable serialized fiction. Each game told a bit of the story through prose and changing and adding mechanics in. This now spans a trilogy of games, Season 1, Season 2, and the final installment, the prequel, Season 0. Each of these games feels undeniably like a Pandemic game but also have their own unique vibes setting and require a whole bunch of really different approaches. How did you approach deciding what would be different in each installment? How do you balance that? Yeah, that was a real trick. So I worked on that with Rob Davio, and each one took between a year or two years. I think the third one took maybe even slightly longer than two years to design. And each one was its own project. The first one, we were trying to discover what the sort of the genre exactly was. Rob had worked on Risk Legacy, so he knew legacy games inside and out at that point. Mm -hmm. And then we had this simple engine of the pandemic base game. And the next was just trying to figure out how can we morph that and tell a good story. And we were discovering as we went. I mean, we discovered that, wow, this is like episodic television. That's exactly how it felt. Yeah, you can string them together. And then we did some reading on story because I'm not a natural storyteller. I didn't spend much time in that space, but I picked up some books on good story construction. And we started to think about how we could lay out the episodes or games in a sequence uh, to tell a greater arc, a big narrative arc. And then also like each individual game and how that could be broken down into like beats and ups and downs and basically just try to make this emotional journey for the players. So that was a story element, trying to navigate that. But then there's the whole mechanism side as well. We didn't want you to play the first one and then repeat that in the second season. So the first one is really about finding our legs, trying to understand the structure, uh, mapping a game into language that people could understand. So each game became a, a month. You could replay the game, which meant you played the second half of the month, which is a little tortured, but people had no problem with it. Coming up with ideas like how you could add funding in order to balance the difficulty so that you'd have these loops working so that 
players who were doing really well didn't have a cakewalk experience and players who were really suffering didn't dig themselves into a bottomless pit. I think we took a lot of ideas that we had banging around at the time. Some of it was drawn from the pandemic expansions, trying to figure out how can we serialize that. So that was the thing that the other two seasons kind of reacted against. We're taking a moment to thank our sponsor, Morty. Morty is a free app for discovering, planning, tracking, and reviewing your escape rooms and other immersive social outings. I believe in it so much that I have a stake in it as an advisor. PG, what's your favorite Morty feature? The feature that I really love about Morty is that you can put your own ratings down there. So it lets you kind of keep a recording of your experience. Did you like the game? What did you not like about it? Who did you play with? And it even has a place for you to post photos. Your post room group photo, you can put that in there so it helps you remember who you played with that day and how you were feeling about it. So I I just, I love their tracking features. It's so rich. There's so much you can do with it. You can learn more at mortyapp.com slash repod. That's R-E-P-O-D to sign up and get a special badge for our listeners. Link and details in the show notes. When I finally got around to playing Pandemic Legacy, I had been told by like everybody I knew that I needed to play this. And um, it had been so hyped up for me that I was like, I I don't know how I'm going to enjoy this. It's just going to be like a pandemic gauntlet. And I started playing it and I, I hadn't conceived of a world where a tabletop game could feel like episodic TV could tell me a story that I cared about beyond the story that we were creating at the board ourselves. Mm-hmm. And there's, there was a point in it where, and I think it's the same point for most people where you realize like, oh, wow, this is really telling me a story. And this is changing. This is the same game, but it's different now. The world is different. And the things that I'm afraid of are different than the things I was afraid of when we first started playing. It uses mechanics to make you feel powerless. It uses them to make you feel empowered. It takes you on this whole huge journey. And I'm really curious, how did you go about tinkering with those core gameplay loops? Like, how did you go and find the right ones that make people feel powerless enough that they know something needs to change but not so powerless that they're just losing all the time. Yeah, so I think that the primary thing was just doing lots of research and then a lot of experimentation. We knew early on that we wanted people to slide in to the game with very little ramp. So mm-hmm. the first game you play is pretty familiar. It's basically pandemic, and then we can't have it totally just basic pandemic. So about two-thirds of the way through the game, there's a tilt and things change. And some of the patterns that we used were, like you're saying, trying to find ways to make the players feel embattled or powerless or hopeless or not completely hopeless, but really Mm -hmm. imperiled, right? And then one of the the tricks then is after you play the game, you get some points to spend on upgrades. And at that point, you'd unlock some goodies that would show you uh, some powerful ways to combat what you just faced. And so that created just tremendous amount of anticipation. You want to be able to take advantage of all those new goodies that you've got to fight back against the game. And I don't know, like an Empire Strikes Back sort of thing. You know, mm-hmm. I, I go back after it and tackle the, the problems that I had in the previous episode. So you really want to play again. And then you'd start playing again. You're very excited to use those tools. And then a new obstacle hits you. you just walk through the plot in that way. The other thing, and I think this came through, especially in Season Zero, is in that installment, you 
managed to make characters that our playgroup had some very strong opinions about, which again, was not something that I was really prepared outside of a tabletop RPG type experience. I can't really recall very many tabletop games where there was a character is like, I don't like this character. I, I don't want to deal with them. I want to get around them. I want to like, they're not just an obstacle in the game, but they're a person that I dislike. Yeah, got it. And you're talking about NPCs. You're not talking about the characters, yes. the players. Yeah, no, I'm not talking about my teammates. Right. I love my teammates. <laughs> yeah, one of the fun things that season zero is about uh, you're a CIA agent, or basically you're a, I guess you're a medical student fresh out of school that has been trained by the CAA. <laughs> and we wanted there to be a lot of uncertainty about who you could trust and play a lot with the psychology of all of that. So it was fun kind of crafting characters that would question where each person's alliances were and who you could trust, who you couldn't. And yeah, it was fun setting these things up and watching playgroups react to them and trying to figure out how to push people's buttons <laughs> in order to to elicit certain behaviors. It ended up being like this little behavior lab, really, that Rob and I put together. It certainly works. This is really interesting to me from an escape room design standpoint, because the escape room world has been grappling with a lot of the same similar ideas of how do you take this game that's static about like solving puzzles and how do you wrap story around it? How do you make people feel emotions, take them on an emotional arc? And the best escape rooms out there are, are doing this and they're using a lot of very similar approaches to the things that you did in Pandemic Legacy. And so it was a really cool thing for me to watch Pandemic turn from just this game that you play that has its own kind of narrative, but it's your team's narrative and it's you reacting to the board to something that is building in a more deliberate story structure. And it's very similar to what we've seen in escape rooms as well. Yeah, I hadn't really thought about the, the parallels there. Thinking about it right now, it's striking. Uh, they're very similar kinds of things. They're both cooperative exercises. They both set a stage. They both try to tell a story and yeah, and give you a, a sequence of, of problems to, to solve together. There's a lot of overlap. <laughs> yeah. A lot of the creators that we interview, some of the best creators in the escape room industry, approach their design, they approach it cinematically. They talk about when they create the storyline. They want to make sure that there's a three-act format where there's a climax, there's a bad guy. And of course, everybody bonds over um, hating something collectively. So you got to give them a good villain, a good bad guy to hate. Yeah. So I'm going to have to check it out because I have not played the legacy games. I've played regular Pandemic and David. I've been trying to get PG to play Pandemic Legacy for a while. Yeah. So <laughs> before we move on from Pandemic and onto some of your other stuff, You've been on a journey with the Pandemic series for more than a decade, and the world has changed dramatically in all too relevant ways. How has your relationship with the theme and the mechanics of Pandemic changed over the years? I'm trying to think uh, how to answer that. A lot of the work that I've done over the last 10 years, the, the most recent work has been looking at sort of the mechanics of, of Pandemic and applying it to different spaces. So we had a H.P. Lovecraft Cthulhu version of Pandemic. It's There's one set in the Netherlands with the rising floodwaters. There's Roman legions defending barbarian hordes and so on. And so it's not really just all about disease. And a lot of the work that I did on the, the base gaming expansions was done quite a while ago. Now when I look at it, I could see different things that we could take advantage of. Like I mentioned, reframing four different diseases to four different variants, for example. And and so I see potentially in the future some opportunity to, to take a lot of the language that we're all like armchair epidemiologists now, uh, <laughs> talk about how some of that stuff could be woven into the game so it, it feels familiar to all of us who've been living through it. But it is, it's a complex relationship because I think a lot of people turn to gaming to escape 
And uh, if you're in the midst of a pandemic, I, I totally understand how you might not want to reach for a board game that is about what you're going through day to day. So I've also wanted there to be a little bit of distance so that it's not, you know, we never named the diseases in the games. Which is a very artful decision. Yeah, I, I feel like at the time I was like, it just didn't feel right. But in retrospect, I think it was the right call, given that they're always like timely. This won't be the last pandemic we go through. Whatever disease of the day, you can map onto the game and understand. In the pre-pandemic era, it was also sort of its own emergent gameplay opportunity where people would name their own diseases. Oh, totally. In fact, in the On the Brink expansion, we gave you little Petri dishes and you could write the name on the Petri dish. So, you know, this is where I keep the blue disease, whether it's the bubonic plague or what have you. I love the Petri dishes. The blue bonnet plague. So <laughs> <laughs> affluenza was, was popular because uh, it was out in the Western world. Yeah. I think, though, that there is something about playing pandemic during a pandemic because you get a sense of control over something that in your normal life you don't have control over. And I think that's part of the reason why, you know, when all of this first started, so many people went and rewatched all of those old pandemic movies, Outbreak and 12 Monkeys and things like that, because you want to experience it, but there's some sense of control. Oh, totally. Yeah, yeah. I've heard of, of doctors and nurses playing it after hours, which just blows my mind. I don't know why you do that. <laughs> because it gives you a sense of autonomy and agency. And then it also provides a place to, to talk about stuff across the table. I made my own mod of base pandemic as a cathartic experience for myself in the first few months of COVID. It just made me feel better. It gave me something to work on. But yeah, I get it. And I played season two and season zero with my pandemic pod, which was also its own surreal experience. Um. <laughs> That's great. I'm glad it was helpful. Yeah, it was a strange thing to experience. When I designed the game, a pandemic was something that happened to other people somewhere else in the world. And then it hit home really quickly. Yeah. My background is in UX design. And I've done a lot of work in the humanitarian space. And so I've always felt a little bit of a connection to this game through that. And yeah, it just, it's its own interesting power fantasy to be able to like take care of the world a little bit that way. That's a great way to think about it. Yeah, when people talk about how the theme matches the mechanisms and so on, I put myself in the, the chair of the epidemiologist looking at it thinking, yeah, I don't actually travel from city to city treating thousands of millions of people. But yeah, it does. It, it's very cinematic in that regard. And uh, you do feel like a hero when you're doing it. And I think it gets the emotional journey. I see the board game as it's an equivalent to the West Wing, which is like this idealized version of the executive branch where everyone's intentions are good, even the people who disagree. And it's a feel good experience, especially once you wrap your head around the mechanics and how they interact and you can exercise some amount of control and you're not just being run over by the mechanics. Oh, God. Maybe the nicest compliment I've gotten about the game. So thanks for that. <laughs> <laughs> like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, Virtual Escape Games. Virtual Escape Games specializes in virtual team building adventures for teams anywhere around the globe, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. I love Virtual Escape Games. Their games are well produced, they're quirky, and they have really fun nostalgic themes like an 80s workout video, 90s teen slasher movies, or like hacker themes from the early 2000s. And they're filled with a bunch of fun pop culture references. They use Telescape, 
which is my favorite interface, as you all know. All of the games from Virtual Escape Games are easy enough to pick up that they won't be intimidating for people new to puzzle games, but I think they're still fun even for a group of experienced puzzle enthusiasts. Their GMs are all charming, funny, and professional. Virtual Escape Games specializes in corporate team building, and they can accommodate large groups, anywhere from a team of four up to 400 or higher. If you're looking for a fun and affordable team building experience, you should definitely check out Virtual Escape Games. For non-hosted games, one to six players, you can get 20% off using the code REA20. And for your team building adventures, you can also knock off 20% with the code TB20. All of this is available for you at virtualescapegames.com. These details are in the show notes. I had a slight morality crisis when I was playing and I was like, oh, I don't need to cure these cities that only have one or two diseases. I need to make my way to the ones with three, you know, because my first, because I, I played it through a bunch of times last night just to refresh myself. And at first, mm -hmm. my first playthrough, I'm like, oh, I'm in a city with a disease. I might as well cure it. I'm already here. And then I realized this is a waste of your actions. Like you need to beeline it to the cities with the three blocks. And I'm ignoring all of these disease cities to go to the really imperiled ones. And so that was like its own journey when I was like, oh, like you have to go, you know, that's, that's the strategy, right? PG, if you're enjoying that uh, cognitive dissonance, uh, I definitely uh, encourage you to check out Pandemic Legacy Season 1. Because it's yeah, to... for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there, there are things in those boxes, yeah. Yes. I'm going to lose it. I had a question about the expansions. Is it like you need the original game and then you buy, are they like add-ons to the original? Are they all new skins? So there's the base game Pandemic, and you can play that on its own. And there's three additional expansions that, that plug into that, On the Brink, In the Lab, and State of Emergency. And each one of those has different components that modify the, the way that base game plays. In addition to that, we've got the Legacy series that we talked about. And then there's a, a series of uh, standalone games that use the underlying mechanisms of Pandemic, but like set it in a different world and, and change it, sometimes pretty considerably. The Cthulhu one is noticeably different. Yeah, I would say the Fall of Rome also pretty different, and the uh, Rising Tide game. So they, they're all set in different countries and have different themes and modify the way the, the game works. But you don't need the base game for that because they're their own standalone version. We just had a World of Warcraft Wrath of the Lich King uh, version came out. Our friend Riley Stock, who hosts the Board Game Community Show, which everyone should check out. Riley is a gem of a human being. He wanted me to ask you, what are the hurdles that cooperative games have to overcome that are unique to the co-op game format from a design standpoint? Let's see. There's a bunch of different ones. One that people like to, to harp on is the alpha gamer problem or like <laughs> having one domineering player kind of run the show for everyone. It depends on your philosophy as a game design, whether this is a problem that the game needs to solve or not. So from my part, I tend to attract an audience of people who generally want to play with each other and know each other and help each other out and play together as a team and like that cooperative aspect. I imagine it'd be very similar to an escape room crowd. I would say so. Yeah, but then imagine having competitive escape rooms 
where the people don't know each other and are thrown together <laughs> and have to play together and they're trying to get the best time possible. If you put people in a situation like that, you might find that certain people feel like they know what the answer is and dominate other people. For example, this doesn't happen much, if at all. If you threw people at a tournament together into a pandemic tournament and the objective is to win and you're playing with people you don't know, you've got a totally different set of incentives there. Or if you've got people who are playing and they're really all about mastery and they're playing with a group of friends who are really about camaraderie, you've got a, a disconnect there. And there's very little, I think, that a game designer can do to combat that. It's like trying to solve for chess where you've got a master playing against a new player. The game really can't do a whole lot for that. But there's a whole field there of like, how can we solve this problem? You can make some of the information hidden. You can give people different secret objectives. You can introduce all sorts of asymmetries. For my part, I try to give each player sort of a unique thing that they can contribute. So if you're the medic, for example, you're really good at treating. If you're the scientist, you're really good at curing, that sort of thing. So that's one area. Another is just balance, just trying to make sure that the challenge that the game provides is appropriate to the players who are playing it. When you're playing a competitive game, I think a lot of the times the, the players are selecting for opponents that may be appropriate for themselves. It's definitely, it's a challenge. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's a legitimate challenge. I saw yesterday, I actually, it really stood out to me. I saw on a lot of the roll cards where it says you can move another player's pawn to a city where there's player. And then underneath, it always says, please make sure you ask for permission from the player <laughs> before you do this. And, and I saw that it had it on every time. And it, I totally thought of that just now when you were like, we got to solve for this alpha gamer <laughs> mode. Isn't that funny? It seems like the most ridiculous thing. So before shifting to game design, as we mentioned earlier, you were working as a user experience and interaction designer. What's an important lesson from interaction design that is at the heart of your approach to game design? first word that popped into my mind was humility, <laughs> <laughs> knowing that you don't know all the answers. And this comes from watching uh, in user experience design, just watching lots of user tests. And there's a, just a direct parallel between user testing and play testing. I, I don't know what the difference is. I mean, you set up a little experiment, you put it in front of humans, they do what you don't expect, and then you learn. <laughs> That's sort of uh, how it works. I tell people the same thing, and you have to watch them, and you have to watch their facial expressions, because you'll see disappointment in their eyes, yeah. and it will cut you deep. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then they'll tell you, it's totally fine. Yeah, they, they don't even realize that like they just looked completely baffled and right. confused and agitated all at the same time. Then they'll you... they to blame themselves and say that your product is totally fine. That's why I don't do any surveys because I get the surveys back and it's all glossed over and all the all the signal is lost by that point. Do you remember a time when during the playtesting of Pandemic where they were doing something that you totally didn't expect and you had to change? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah, I, I can think of one very specific occurrence that happened early on with the design of the core game. So this was back in 2005, 2006, something like that. And at the time, the game only had a single deck of cards. And the single deck of cards was your player deck and also drove the infections on the board. And the thing about that is that you had two different discard piles. So one draw pile and two different discard piles. And so I'd watch and people would play and they would draw a card. And then if it was their player card, they'd discard it here. And if it was an infection, they'd discard it over there. And they were continually screwing that up. And I was continually prodding them to say, no, actually, pardon me, it actually goes over there. And I do this over <laughs> and over again. And one of the user researchers just said, will you shut up and sit down in the corner and just watch us, okay? <laughs> and uh, that always stuck with me. Uh, because then I learned, of course, that the game was 
pretty much unplayable as it was designed because people were just continually screwing up. And it, it wasn't their fault fundamentally. It was just I was asking them to do something that people don't do in games, which is have a single draw pile and two discard piles. So I had to add 54 cards or something to the game, which I felt horrible about, but it made the game playable. I had long suspected that there was an early version where those two decks were the same deck. There was a point where I remember realizing that the cards were more or less identical. And I was like, I wonder how it iterated to get to the point where there were two decks. Well, that introduced its own problems because the cards almost look identical, right? Uh, and opportunities. So I was able to put event cards in. I was able to regulate epidemics and so on. But then I, I had to go, okay, the player cards are portrait-oriented. They can be rotated either way. And then the infection ones are landscape and look really dark and overload the coding a lot. That's cool. That's smart. We had an escape room a puzzle designer tell us also once. They were like, if 90% of the people playing your game are solving a puzzle a certain way, maybe that should just be the way it's meant to be solved and not this weird convoluted answer that you, you want them to do that doesn't feel natural. Because ultimately the point is it's supposed to feel fun for people to play. Oh, totally. And you learn that just by watching people. One another thing is like everybody calls something uh, X, then maybe you should call it X. So I, I keep an ear out for terminology as well as like play. Hey folks, I'd like to take a moment to talk to you about something that I've been working on with a bunch of people from the team over here for years. We've been wanting to host Recon, the Reality Escape convention in person in Boston for a very long time. And circumstances have halted that effort, but not this year, we're doing it. August 21st and 22nd of 2022, in Boston, Recon is happening. We are blending escape room conference with the tours we've been producing for years to produce a proper escape room convention. You'll meet people, you'll play games, you'll hear wonderful talks. It's gonna be a great time, and I truly hope that you come and join us. Tickets for Recon are available now. You can learn more at realityescapecon.com. Details in the show notes. Your next project is Daybreak. Tell us about it. So Daybreak is a cooperative game as well. This time, again, looking at an existential threat, this time about the climate crisis. And it's got the players taking on the role of world powers. So you can play the United States or Europe or China or a majority world, which is the global south coalition of countries. And your objective is to reach net zero emissions. And all the while, you need to protect your communities from going into crisis. So you have to balance these things. You have to roll out policies and technologies that draw down carbon and also roll out stuff that protects people. So it's about mitigating emissions and also adapting at the same time. And it's, a, it's like a little engine builder. You build out the cards using opportunity cards and, and build out a tableau of things that build up. And you can see this positive feedback loop. You can feel more powerful as the game progresses, while at the same time, you see what the impacts of all the rising temperature has on the planet. So it's this race of two different positive feedback loops, the, all the negative externalities of all this carbon accumulating in the atmosphere versus uh, you, the players, really racing to catch up and take advantage of all this power you can unlock. And it's a pretty optimistic game. It, it starts out saying, okay, well, what if people of the world actually agreed to fight climate and work together? So it's not really about hidden agendas and traders, and you don't play the fossil fuel industry. You're all working with goodwill. So in a, in a sense, it is a bit of a fantasy, but it's also something that 
I think we really need. We need to be able to experience and uh, tell stories of, of positive outcomes, not just look at doom and gloom, right? So this actually shows you a path to, or many paths you could experience creatively, uh, many different paths to decarbonizing and, and seeing the benefits of that better future. You design with a lot of heavy themes, and I'm curious how you go about walking that line between hope and despair when you're working in this realm. <laughs> It's funny that you mentioned that. When I first started working on this, it was, I think it was March of 2020. So it was right when lockdowns were starting and all this news about climate was coming in. And I felt I, I should try to do something more meaningful with the games I work on. And so I started doing a lot of research into the topic. Actually, I started researching it even before then and found that all these climate books just start off with the stakes. And, and the first chapter was really hard to get through it, many of them because they're all about the threat. And so I crawled into this like trough of despair and didn't know how to get out for a while. But then I, I started reading a little bit more and understanding that there are solutions to it. And so I kind of wanted to bring the players on that same journey of seeing, okay, well, here's what the stakes are and, and here's this, this possible potential future and give them the opportunity to go on that journey with me or experience what I, I did when I did a lot of this research. So I don't know if that helps at all. I just felt, wow, this transition is important and being able to like articulate it and get your arms around it is really important. Because for me, it was like this nebulous thing that was hard to describe, hard to understand how the system worked. And I think by playing a game, you can internalize that system. I think that's a really cool way of approaching it. With all of the playtesting that you do, I'm curious if there are behaviors that make you smile and feel confident that in a player's ability to work with their team when you're watching them, like when you're watching a group interact, what are the behaviors that make you feel good about the group that's that's playing? It can be as simple as just leaning into the table to show that you're mm -hmm. engaged all the way up to like people going, yes, and, you know, high-fiving <laughs> and clapping and, and applauding and so on. And it's funny when you're watching it, you get a sense for rising tension and it's not something you can necessarily say what's happening it's just in the air people get quiet and serious and then you get these moments of relief that's really important that getting that tension and engagement is, is one thing mm -hmm. getting players to work together yeah if you see people giving suggestions or asking questions and offering differing opinions that's another thing like you don't want there to be a single way to solve any given problem so if you see any kind of reason debate that seems like a good thing to me because it's like the game is presenting a problem and there's multiple solutions so i get excited when i see that conversely is there a behavior that just makes you cringe and realize someone is just going to be a burden on their team for the entirety of the game sometimes you may see a, a game playing where someone's just not personally invested in it and then you know that something's wrong. They don't care about the stakes of the game. They're not like opting into the, the game. And they're like, oh, just tell me what to do. If you see that, it's just like, oh my God, something's really wrong here. Or God help you, the phone comes out. It's just like, oh, it, it, something's wrong. Yeah, that's definitely the same dynamic that I find troublesome in escape rooms. It's usually like someone brought their significant other and the significant other just did not want to be there. And it's just a question of will the game thaw their heart enough to get them to engage? Or are they going to be resistant the entire time? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I feel like a lot of it comes from anxiety over social embarrassment, over not being perceived as smart enough, like everybody else is smarter than me and I'm going to be called on, I'm not going to have the right answer, and I'm going to be really embarrassed. I think that's where a lot of it comes from. So if the other players can create a safe place for them to contribute ideas to the extent that they're able, then that generally works out better. 
that's very much the same in escape rooms. As somebody who loves co-op games, who are some of the other creators in this space? And what are some of the games that you think deserve a bit more of a spotlight? I really like Magic Maze. I don't know if you've seen that one. Magic um, Maze is great. Yeah, a cooperative real-time puzzle solver where you're just trying to get four adventurers out of a shopping mall with their gear. Yeah. I mean, it solves that domineering problem by just saying nobody can talk. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, I think that's got a really wonderful ramp to it. You can play the basic game and it's pretty straightforward. And then it just very incrementally ratchets up the difficulty. And generally, I would keep playing that if I could because I, I just want to see how far I can get in it. There is an unlock tabletop escape game adaptation of Pandemic that I must admit I haven't played. It's in my giant pile of tabletop escape games to play. Were you involved in the design of that game at all? I wasn't. I did see the solution. They walked me through the whole thing and I thought it was brilliant. So I'd love to see to hear your take on it. I, w I was really impressed with it. I realized last night, I was like, oh, damn, this is something I probably should have gone and explored a little bit more. <laughs> I think it's out now. I don't even have a set yet, but I, I'd like to watch some folks go through it because it looked really interesting. We should play it on Twitch, David. <laughs> we can do that. <laughs> All right. So we'll be checking that out. Pandemic and to a lesser extent, Forbidden Island get a lot of attention among the games you've designed. Is there a game that you've created specifically that you wish more people would pay attention to that you feel like should be picked up off the shelf more often? There's a, a place in my heart for uh, Roll Through the Ages, the Bronze Age, which was a, a game that I did the year after Pandemic, which was a roll and write before roll and writes really uh, became popular. And that was a game that I did as part of a game design challenge with friends and, and built it out into a, a product. And the idea there was nobody had time to play the epic 8 to 12 hour civilization games uh, that were, yeah. were popular in our youth. So we're like, how can we do that in 40 minutes? And that's what this dice game is. So it was designed to be played in a pub. So it's got a nice chunky wooden board with pegs. And uh, yeah, a roll and write where you can get all the thrills of uh, civilization, but in 40 minutes uh, and still spill your beer on it was, was a, the pitch. You say a roll and write? Roll and write. So you roll your dice, you get some results, maybe you roll again, and then you write your result on a pad of paper. The granddaddy of these things is Yahtzee. So if you think of uh, Yahtzee where you roll, I think you get two re-rolls there, and then you, you take your score and write it down on a pad of paper. So it doesn't require very many components. Ah, oh, I love pub games. I will have to check this one out. So do you have a sense of when Daybreak is going to be released? Well, I think you can confidently assume that the Kickstarter will be happening this year comfortably. And I think it would be great if we could fulfill this year as well. I don't know if that's something we can promise, though. We'd like to get this thing out as soon as we can. The design is pretty much wrapped up, and so we're working on production right now. So as soon as we can get it out is, uh, I guess, the short answer. So keep your eyes peeled for that. And I've read that Pandemic Legacy Season Zero is the end of the line for the Pandemic Legacy series, but is there any hope for a Season 3 or negative 1? <laughs> <laughs> he needs his fix. I don't think Rob and I have it in us to, to create another big box uh, Pandemic Legacy set, so... What you heard is true. Uh, that's not to say that there wouldn't be some sort of adjacent product that was in that same world, maybe. But yeah, there won't be another season for sure. Okay. I'll, I'll just have to live with that answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so aside from the Kickstarter, what's coming next for you? I'm putting a lot of energy into Daybreak right now. That was about a two-year design effort, and we're just about done with that. 
And yeah, I think the other stuff, we got a lot of in the pipeline. There, There is more pandemic or pandemic adjacent stuff uh, coming, but uh, yeah, nothing, nothing I can really quite announce yet. That's fine. Uh, keep our ears open. I just had one last question. I don't know if you can speak to this or not, but last night I was started looking for online versions of pandemic mm-hmm. and I came across a bunch of articles that said that they had been pulled. Are they going to come out with one or can you talk about why they got pulled? Well, I can say that that game is quite old and it was built on a, a fairly old code base. And I think we have really grand designs on what pandemic could be in a digital area. And that was not the way to do it, to build it on that older code base. Yeah, I don't know how much they've announced yet, but that's not the end of the line for digital pandemic games. In the meantime, you can play in BGA, but that, again, that wasn't the motivation to direct traffic to BGA or anything like that. It was more like, how can we do a better job doing digital for pandemic online? And this was just sort of an unfortunate stepping stone to getting there. Where can people find you on social media? I'm at Matt Leacock on Twitter. And I think on Instagram, I'm Matt.Leacock, although I'm not terribly active over there. Occasionally, I'll, you'll see like some craft project I'm working over there. <laughs> <laughs> Leacock.com, I've got a blog that I, I post to occasionally. And my products are, are listed there as well. Okay, great. We will have all of that on the show notes. Matt, thank you so very much for joining us. This has been a true pleasure. Thanks. It was a lot of fun. The Reality Escape Pod is produced by Lisa Spira, edited by Steve Ewing of Stand Inside Media, and brought to you by RoomEscapeArtist.com, your home for well-researched, rational, and reasonably humorous escape room and immersive gaming content and events. I'd like to take a minute to talk to y'all from the heart. PG and I put a lot into making all of these episodes, as do the team that is off microphone. My wife, Lisa, Steve, our editor, put a ton into producing this podcast. All of this is made possible because of the support from our Patreon community. That financial support allows us to invest in the production value of what we're making and allows us to inch our way towards making this into a proper career. It's hard to monetize content these days, and our Patreon community really does allow us to do that. And we're really trying to grow. So we put out extra bonus episodes for our patrons. We have a spoilers club for higher level backers. We've got a Discord chat, and we're always adding new things to the mix for our patrons. So if you love what we're doing, please consider supporting us. It means more than you could ever imagine and you'll get a whole bunch of extra content too. Thank you again to all our patrons. If you aren't one, I hope you become one. Yeah, so one thing that I've noticed by using this testing method that I use, basically I ship the game out to somebody and just say, hey, record yourself with your cell phone or your laptop or what have you, and just let it roll and act natural, pretend the camera's not rolling. People really do forget that their devices are on. And so you get to see all sorts of things that I wouldn't expect to see while the camera's rolling. Uh, nothing, nothing really like, I was going to say certainly nothing illegal, but that's not really true. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, one, of the, one of the first ones was for Pandemic the Cure, just watching people uh, play that. And one guy just casually, uh, so please understand, now this just seems like nothing. But back at the time, I was like, what are you doing? A guy was just lighting up a joint and passing it around as they're rolling the dice. And this is when cannabis is illegal in California. So that kind of surprised me. But you see all sorts of like, sometimes you see marital um, spats. 
any kids doing goofy things. I mean, their their parents leave the frame and they're messing about. Yeah, it's enjoyable to see this kind of stuff. Sometimes surprising, but it, it this is not the kind of stuff that you'd see in a usability lab or <laughs> that you'd see if I was like watching them sitting there. 